Hi everyone, welcome to Mistakes Were Made, and today I'm really excited. We're here with Carrie Jenkins, our first guest on the podcast. Hi Carrie, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Will you tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Carrie Jenkins. I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia. Um, I'm the author of a book called What Love Is and What It Could Be. Um, I have a new book coming out this summer called Sad Love, Romance and the Search for Meaning. Wonderful. Thanks so much for being here with us today. So, Carrie, I noticed in one of your bios, you describe yourself as philosophy's crazy ex-girlfriend. And I, I literally almost spit out my copy. I loved it so much. And I just want to hear from you a little bit about what you mean by that. <laughs> There's a lot of layers. Um, firstly, uh, I do struggle with my mental health and I'm willing to wear all the labels that, uh, that come along with that and, and reclaim some of those a little bit. Um, the other one is, I, so philosophy is a very complicated uh, uh, environment, it's a very male-dominated academic discipline, um, and it can behave, and I'm not the only person to have noticed this, it can behave like an abusive partner. So when I think of myself as being philosophy's crazy ex-girlfriend, I'm seeing that as the flip side of saying that philosophy is my abusive ex-boyfriend. And <laughs> We have. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that is like yeah. broken up. <laughs> that is such I a great still, drag. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I still think of myself as doing philosophy and being a philosopher, but um, there are a lot of things about how I used to think of, especially philosophy and academia, that I'm definitely now out of that abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. So, Carrie Jenkins, thanks so much for being here. I'm really excited to dive into your work, your books big ideas about love and why we think about it the way we do. But of course, first, we'd like to know a little bit of, about your love life. Right, Alex? Yeah, for sure. So <laughs> it seems like um, you have a super interesting career uh, and, um, you know, the professional things that you're doing are, are amazing. And we want to talk about those. But um, I think they're, they're maybe like kind of intertwined with personal things. So um, I was wondering if it's okay if we ask some um, personal questions and you can kind of talk about like... Of course. Uh, Fire away. Okay, great. Yeah, so Thanks, just, uh, I mean, I guess the first thing is like, um, you're non-monogamous, right? Uh, or yeah. it, do you consider, it's is true. that the sort of label you use? And can you tell us a little bit about That's your like... That's what I would use, yeah. Yeah. I, What's would, your... I would say polyamorous as well. I, they, you know, I, I like both. Uh, they're both accurate. <laughs> and would you mind sharing a little bit about what your sort of like relationship constellation looks like? Or like, um, is that like always in flux or, yeah. Well, um, it's... It's interesting right now. So I can tell you right now I'm actually in four long-term relationships. This has never happened to me before. Wow. Um, my, my previous maximum was two. And um, recently, I mean, since the pandemic, I've actually found, um, you know, a, a great problem to have. I found more people than I expected to that I actually like um, and I've, I've gotten very close to. Um, so scheduling is now uh, overwhelming. <laughs> my life is very complicated. <laughs> but like I said, this is this is a great problem to have. Um, usually, my problem is that I tend to hate everyone. Um, so so right now, I'm married. Um, I've been with my husband Jonathan for upwards of uh, twelve years. We had our eleventh wedding anniversary oh. earlier this year. Congrats. Um, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, we've always been non-monogamous. We knew when we were getting together that that was what we wanted for, for the relationship. Um, and um, more recently, I've been seeing um, three other partners 
Um, the longest of those relationships is now four years, three years old. <laughs> um, I forget. Pandemic time is very strange. Yeah. So two, oh, two so of confusing. them I know are, you know, this side of the most of the shutdown due to the pandemic. And one is from before. So that's kind of in my mind. That's how I keep time now. Before times and the after times. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it's also like a pandemic before. year, which is emotionally a decade, right? Exactly. Right. It doesn't even, time doesn't even flow in any kind of normal way during those times. Um, so they were both a decade and also only a couple of weeks. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love that you said that you, I think you said you don't like people. Um, that really, uh, <laughs> we, it reminds me of conversations that we've been having recently about just like the, the experience of um, both, I guess, being a, uh, like sort of liking everybody and being interested in being like deeply in a relationship with more people that doesn't have to be at odds with like a general skepticism of humanity sometimes too. <laughs> no. Such an and I mean, I think, I think that's exactly it. Right. And I think it's, it's, you know, people on mass are, are kind of a disaster. <laughs> I see it anyway. Um, and then you find just one or two here and there, but then when you find one, it's so rare and exciting and special that you want to be everything, every way you can be with them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is, for me, why polyamory is, is I, I mean, has always felt like the most natural way of relating. Because when yeah. I meet one of these people that I could love, I, I don't want to be told I, I'm not allowed to do that. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about how that has related to your work? Like, did you, you were polyamorous before you started studying love yes. if i can call that what you do um yeah uh, i was yeah what do you think those things were related like did that kind of having a like a non-traditional orientation like lead you to interrogate love in a in a more like academic way yes a hundred percent so what what it really came down to was um so when my husband and i started to talk about being non-monogamous um we started. We just got into a lot of conversations that I would now call philosophical conversations about that and the ethics of it, the politics of it, and even just like very basic questions about what love is. Um, because people would say something like, "Oh, it's not real love if you have eyes for anyone else," you know. And I was like, "Well, that's an interesting statement. What what is this love thing then? That it's impossible to have it for more than one person at a time." Um, and yet so many of us seem to have it for more than one person at a time, just on the regular. Mm-hmm. Um, so so this, this kind of statement made me start thinking the kinds of philosophy that I do, the philosophical questions that I'm used to asking and answering in my professional life, maybe I can use some of the same tools and strategies to think about these kinds of questions about what love is. And that's where my book, What Love Is and what it could be came from basically just the application of my background knowledge and training to that question of specifically what romantic love is so I'm not trying to answer for other kinds of you know family love or friendship and so on I just wanted to know what is what is this romantic love thing that I supposedly am doing well well thank goodness we've found someone who can finally define it for us (laughs) (laughs) that's what you philosophers do right (laughs) i'm I'm not the person (laughs) Uh. 
Wait, what? <laughs> the definition is I, like an entire book, right? I was going to say, yeah, there's a theory, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say a definition, not by a long way. <laughs> I'll tell you some of my theories. <laughs> well, yes, please. I would love to hear some of your theories. And I was wondering, actually, but just kind of in keeping with the theme of this podcast, if one way of getting into those might be asking, what do you think are some mistakes our culture makes about love? So there's, there's a lot. Um, so <laughs> there's, the way that I kind of see it, there's, there's a bit of a script that we expect for romantic relationships. And we kind of, um, we want to define romantic love. And in fact, we want to define it as the thing that follows that specific kind of script. So, you know, the, and here's the shortest version of the script. It, it's a playground rhyme. It goes so-and-so and so-and-so sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in a baby carriage, which is a script, right? And we teach it to kids really mm -hmm. early. This is what love is. This is the order it goes in. Kissing first, love, marriage, babies. That's mm -hmm. And then, then, you know, however critical you think you are as an adult, you're never going to fully get that message out of your head because it's mm -hmm. not just the one rhyme, right? It's everything that we're being told and, and taught, um, unless we're very, very lucky to be in some spectacularly interesting environment growing up, most of the messaging we get is just that is what love is, the best kind of love, the kind that everyone should be looking for, mm. um, the kind that you're sort of a bit of a failure if you don't ever succeed in finding. Mm -hmm. um, and so everyone, this is a huge mistake, right? That's not the be all and end all. It's not what everybody wants. It's not what suits everybody. And there's so many features of that script each one of the features of the script is another mistake in the sense that uh, we think we have to conform to it and we don't. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. you know, when we learn that the script has to be one boy and one girl, that's a mistake. It doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. um, when we learn that you're supposed to get married and it doesn't count if you don't, another mistake. When we learn that you've got to have babies with the person and it's not real if you don't have babies, then that's another mistake. So it's the whole, the whole thing is just an attempt to constrain and all of those constraints are wrong. Not that you can't do, do those things, right? So if you want, a, you know, a marriage that looks very like that traditional marriage and you choose it out of all the options available, that's awesome. The mistake is thinking that's the only thing hmm. you can do and it's the only thing you should want. So mm. that's, that's the short version. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one thing we've talked about related to that too is like, there's no second verse to that nursery rhyme. He no. just had the baby and then you're done. Your life is over. <laughs> you have fulfilled all of your duties according to this yeah. script and you can just fall off a cliff and uh -huh. die. Or do you get back <laughs> in the tree? I don't know. I don't know. No, no, no more kissing for you after that yeah. point. <laughs> right. And I also am struck with, uh, you know, playing with that script, how there's only two adults and the, the baby, right? So mm -hmm. I think of... Um, a, a word actually you introduced me to a concept a motto normativity the and maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what what that term means yeah. and how this kind of applies to the script yeah for sure so so a motto normativity um is basically that thing that i was just describing where we feel like we're all constrained to follow the same script so it's a normativity in the sense that it's an, a norm impl imposed on us like a constraint and when people are doing it wrong, we tend to try to punish that. 
like um, the same way that heteronormativity, we try to punish people who are doing it wrong by those lights. Yeah. And so uh, amatonormativity is just this privileging of the one kind of romantic love where it's monogamous, it's permanent, it is actually also usually hetero, it's sexual, uh, it's reproductive, it's basically the nuclear family unit with the white picket fence and everything that goes with that. That's the amatonormative relationship type. And every any divergence from that can be policed or is seen as less than. Um, so you're exactly right. That's that's two names in the script, right? It's not so and so, so and so, and so and so sitting in a tree. <laughs> no, that's not that's not part of the deal at all. And it's not so and so and so and so sitting in the tree for one year, and then so and so and so and somebody else in the tree next year. <laughs> that's a deviation as well. Although we do accept this one much more readily now. Mm-hmm. Serial monogamy mm-hmm. a lot more acceptable than polyamory for example mm-hmm. and a lot more acceptable than it used to be um, so these things are always kind of a little bit in flux and where we're willing to kind of give people a bit of leeway or not around the amatonormative script is up for debate and discussion um, being an unmarried mother for example is at least in some parts of the world is much less of a big deal than it would have been in Victorian mm-hmm. England <laughs> for example right. so you know these things they're not set in stone, they're not, you know, uh, permanent fixtures, but they are what we, what we are dealing with um, in our social lives right now. Yeah, and this idea of also how culture plays into this, and I'm hoping maybe this can get us into some of the things that you explore in your writing, um, mm-hmm. that the, just the assumption, again, of what a family looks like, what love looks like, and the purposes it serves in your research um, and in, in your study of love and especially of romantic love, what, what have you found about the history of that script? And what have you found out about other scripts that might be out there? So the, the, <clears throat> to me, the really interesting thing about the history of the script is not only does it change, it changes very specifically with our social values and basically what we consider to be a good life. Um, So at times when we consider it to be a failed life if you don't have your own biological children, then that element of the script is really, really important. Um, At times when we consider it to be absolutely vital that you are not queer in any way, that element of the script is really, really important that it's one male, one female in the tree or in the marriage or (laughs) in the picket fence or whatever it is. But it changes over time with what we consider to be a good life and and also what we consider to be a good person. Mm. Because what we're doing every time we criticize someone for doing love wrong is we're saying, you are a bad person, you're you're failing at love, you're loving the wrong kind of other person. So, you know, you're a man loving a man. If, If we go in and critique that love, we're saying you are a bad kind of person for being a queer kind of a person. Um, and what happens very similarly to non-monogamous folks right now uh, where um, they, they're told you know, you're doing love wrong because you are loving more than one person at the same time is another way of saying you're, you're a bad person and this is a bad kind of life. Um, so so it, it's interesting that the, the, the shift, the script not only shifts, but it shifts in conjunction with social values and politics and, um, and our ethical outlook, our worldview. 
and what norms sort of are seen as needing of policing at any time. And exactly, exactly. I, and gender norms especially are huge in that too. And economic norms as well, as yeah. we think yeah. about, you know, some of the structures of a good life and who has access to it. I mean, race and culture come into play there too. I also just had to say, when you were describing that idea that you're being judged as a bad person because you're loving wrong, it also hit for me uh, that sometimes my experience in being non-monogamous or polyamorous is that I'm being told you're not lovable in the right way. And that is also yeah. why you're polyamorous or non-monogamous. Oh, so yeah. it just like kind of comes from both directions. Mm. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. I mean, basically every kind of um, pejorative that can be used to police these things will be. Um, mm-hmm. And and so you'll, you'll hear things like, yeah, you're not enough for so-and-so because mm-hmm. they need someone else. It's like, well, would you tell someone who had one child and then had a second child that their first child is not enough? Like, no, that's super rude. Like, that would be me. Right? You wouldn't ever say that. that. That's not how having more than one child works. That's not why yeah. we do that. So why do we think it's okay to say to someone that has a second partner, well, your first partner is not enough then? That, well, no, so, just, I also love this other person. <laughs> you're talking about those things changing over time. Um, and I'm, I think there's a tempting narrative to to like assume that things are kind of like getting more, getting better, more tolerant. Like you know, I guess in sort of like Western <laughs> societies, like we are becoming more progressive, and that's tempting for us. I mean, certainly, as non-monogamous people with children, I think we were saying on the podcast last time that we were talking about that. Like, well, maybe when they grow up, or when this stuff starts to matter more for them, the world will be a different place. Um, mm-hmm. Do you find that to be true? Like, do you think that's the case? And like, how does that line up to what's happening in like maybe other cultures that are not, you know, completely synced it's, up with ours? Right, right. It's it's a super complicated back and forth. Um, so even if you just limit it to, you know, what's going on in supposedly progressive area. I live in Vancouver, BC, you know, very relatively progressive city. Um, even here, when you look at something like the way that non-monogamy was was thrown under the bus as part of the struggle for queer rights in sort of you know prioritizing queer monogamous marriages that look yeah. exactly like the heteronormative marriage but just with two men or two women in it mm-hmm. um, that was a way of saying no we're, we queer people are just like you straight people look mm-hmm. we're also monogamous so therefore we're also good people and what you do when you say that is you have you know, thrown thrown non-monogamy and polyamory under the bus, and a lot of you know a lot of us who are involved in queer activism were really frustrated by that mm. ac- aspect of it because um, you know this it, it's not it's I, I get why it was strategic, <laughs> but it's also really really problematic to do stuff like that, um, and so the same thing kind of happens all the time when one struggle will be going on and maybe progressing, and another one might be kind of shuffled back by that. And of course, all of that is just in in places like where I live right now. And if I was to travel to certain parts of southern U.S., for example, I would be scared even to show up there and talk freely about who I am and and what I do, because I would be, you know, I I don't want to know what would happen to me if I was to go into those sorts of places and say those kinds of things. Um, And, you know, it's it's not uniform everywhere and it's not uniformly progressive, even when things are progressing. But, so that's all the caveats, but yes, in a very sort of broad sense over the long term, I, I have days when I feel optimism about, hmm. about this change. Um, it's just, it's awful slow. 
mm-hmm. it's not it's not you know there's there's always the the two steps forward and the three back and the you know having to having to negotiate all of those kinds of pushbacks whenever you do make a little bit of progress one of the things I heard you say that I think about a lot is you've said that non-monogamy, the way you think of polyamory and non-monogamy is not a critique of monogamy, right? Mm-hmm. You're thinking about it like you just want there to be more ways of loving and more systems of loving available for people to choose from. Um, and that that's what this is about, is about like adding, not about competing. And it made me think of that as you were talking about intersectionality and politics and this idea that there's just this one system and we keep trying to ask for more people or ways of living to be accepted inside of it instead of dismantling some of those systems or adding options to them. And I'm curious in your research and in your work, what are some of the other examples throughout history and culture what are some of the other options or ways of loving and organizing romantic love that you've encountered? So, I mean, there's not all of them are ones that I would propose as excellent alternative models. <laughs> but, but it's, it's um, exciting to just explore all yeah. the different ways that people right. have done this because it reminds us that that nursery rhyme script that we're describing is not inevitable, universal, and permanent. Yeah. So, so, you know, um, it's, it's pretty well known that um, some cultural groups, in fact, the, uh, in the history of, of the, um, the Christian Western culture that we now think of as c- containing that amatonormative script, um, there used to be a pretty common practice of polygamy, which would be patriarchal polygamy, where one man could have multiple uh, wives, um, but a woman couldn't have multiple husbands. But that used to be pretty normal. Um, and, and then sort of historically, it, it was a lot more normal or acceptable for men to have multiple mistresses, even if they couldn't actually marry more than one of the mm-hmm. women. Um, but for a woman to have had, you know, affairs would still have been completely unacceptable. So this is very gendered. Um, yeah. But then you have alternatives that are more... Um, so, so And now you have to start getting into sort of anthropology. Um, but there are some societies that have organ- organized themselves more on a... Um, a sort of a flipped script of that, where women could have multiple male partners. Um, those tended, as far as I know it, and caveat, I'm not an anthropologist, <laughs> to be matriarchal um, and kind of um, uh, just a kind of, not quite a gender-flipped patriarchy, but very differently organized as far as gender goes and more generally. Um, then you have options like uh, arranged marriage culture, um, or something more like Jane Austen style, you know, very formalized courtship where marriage really has nothing to do necessarily with love, or if it does, that's a little bit rebellious and weird, and what it really has to do with is finding an appropriate eligible partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that appropriate and eligible is really determined by your family and your social class and your position and everything. That's another way things sometimes happen, nothing to do with necessarily how attracted you are to a person. Um, and then, so I don't know if if, um, if you folks are familiar with the book Sex at Dawn, um, but the argument, the central thesis of that book is that um, our, our evolutionary origin is in a much more uh, sexually promiscuous style of living, where um, basically anything to do with sexual relationships would have been, um, would have looked absolutely nothing like monogamy, because it would have just been very... Um, 
uh, open, very kind of uh, much more free for all, and um, and that's sort of uh, the argument of um, of that book is that that's therefore what's really natural for for humans. Mm-hmm. Um, I would quibble with that second part, but I'm sure there have been times and places where people live like that because you know that we are a very varied species, and there are all kinds of different ways that we can organize our ourselves and our bonding. Yeah, I want to ask, like, I think the flip side to the question that Sarah asked, as you've studied love um, and romantic love in in different contexts, are there things that that do feel universal that show up over and over again? Like, is the concept of love kind of always there in some way, shape or form? You know, is jealousy always there? What are some of the things that are... Universal is really tricky because, you know, some people don't experience anything of the kind that we would call romantic love or attraction or sexual attraction or sexualized love. Um, And those folks, you know, uh, they may have uh, very close uh, relationships with their friends and their families and community bonds and such. Um, So so love is is clearly part part of their lives, but just not that kind. And so to, to call anything about romantic love universal would really be to to ignore the fact that there are folks for whom it's just not a thing. It just doesn't mm-hmm. happen. And um, so, so not universal, but maybe close to universal in the sense that it doesn't really matter who, where, or when a lot of people will experience this. <laughs> and um, as far as I can tell, the closest thing I've seen as an argument made for, um, for that kind of near universality was about something that the authors were calling romantic love, but was actually infatuation basically so kind of crushy crushy energy obsessive thinking um that seems to happen to a lot of people no matter where or when and um i just i wouldn't put the label romantic love on that because that's not what i think that is although a lot of writers do um especially scientists would write romantic love and why do you why do you take issue with that i think you know uh first listen I was kind of like, yeah, that's what it is. You know, I just, in an unexamined way, uh, yeah. that really so, made sense to me. Tell me more. <laughs> um, so the the crushy thing, um, it's, it's also been called limerence, just to distinguish it from other things. Is um, this also what this, people sometimes call new relationship energy? Um, maybe, although that requires a relationship to exist, whereas you can mm-hmm. feel this crushy thing for someone you've, you've just seen on TV, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I wouldn't call it love for starters because it, that you don't love someone just because you have all of the, right. you know, flutter flutters when they walk into a room. You just have a crush. And, you know, yeah. it, yes, it could, it could turn into love. You could, you know, but you have to know a person to love them, at least that's my my opinion and and if you if you um are experiencing these feelings for someone you've just met you don't know them so i don't think i don't think you love a person um just on the strength of that um they might well be romantic feelings so that part i'm happy to to grant and actually um romance a lot a lot of my critiques of romantic love are targeting not the love part at all, but the romance part of it. <laughs> and so um, a lot of the issues I have would be to do with the way that that feeling gets treated as a good basis for making extreme life decisions, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. which probably really not, not actually a great idea. Um, the way that we're told to stop overthinking it when we get into that state and have those feelings, also really not a good idea. That's, that's time when thinking is actually very useful. 
very good for us. <laughs> yeah, and maybe they're tied into those scripts that you were talking about a minute ago. 100%. Yeah. And the idea that romanticness is all about the emotions and, you know, and, and that the emotions are opposed to reason and, and rationality. So you have to just lean into them and let it be magical and mystical and all of that kind of stuff, which I think is just disempowering ourselves when we need it the most. I often have an experience when we talk about this, like the nature of love, it's where it's like, I'm kind of feeling two opposing things at once where I think intellectually I feel really empowered and it's exciting and it feels mm -hmm. really right. And then I'll feel like some emotional resistance, like a sense of loss over those more traditional ideas of love, of what love could and mm -hmm. should be. And it, it's really pointing out to me just like how strongly those things are, are deeply embedded inside of me and like how scary it is to think of living without them. I know. I, 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 I still get some of that. And it's, it's really weird to me because I don't want any of that back. Like I don't want, the, <laughs> I do not want monogamy back in my life, but I still feel this kind of like, oh, wait a second, have I really messed something up and lost something super great? And it, it's, it's partly, I think that um, it's literally impossible to totally undo your social programming from a very early stage in your life. Um, but also it's very hard to have uh to entirely set aside any kinds of uh, longing or, or self-doubt or whatever it is when we're still living in a society and a culture that's constantly telling you, you should be like this and you should want this and you should have this. And this is the only way really to have the, the magic and the good life and, and all of that. And, you know, knowing that's not true doesn't make it any less like a constant barrage of being told that, that you're wrong. And um, yeah, so... I, I, I really get that, um, but, but um, on the plus side, what I, what I, the way that I try to think about it is ultimately, so, so romanticism, I talk about this actually a lot more in my new work um, because I've, been, I've gotten further with this thought recently, but romanticism wants us to think that the emotions and the rationality are at odds with one another and you have to go one way and reject the other, right? And you, and you should go with your emotions and like lean into the magic. Um, but I think that's part of the myth, and I think it's actually a mistake. And ultimately what I'm pushing for is not that you have to turn those emotions away or reject any of it, but that if you are able to um, get beyond seeing the two as being in opposition, this is ultimately literally my definition of wisdom right now. If you can get your <laughs> rational self and your emotional self to pull you together rather than pull you apart, that's what I think a wise life might look like. Um, mm. oh, that's when I'm thinking about what, what am I trying to achieve here? What do I ultimately want for myself? That's what I want. I don't want to be a rush. I don't want to become a machine that has no feelings and doesn't yeah. pay attention to their feelings. That sounds like nonsense. No, it's... but I, don't, I also don't want to become a, you know, a bubble-headed idiot who won't see the massive abusive red flags in front of her face because she feels the crush feelings, right? So I want to be able to, you know feel my feelings and feel my rational thinking pull me together as a person and make me whole. And I think that here's where we do a tangent of anti-capitalism. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think that that kind of severing of the mind and body of, um, of like emotion and of reason all of those ways that we're distanced from our instincts and our complexity and nuance, I think that is a way that 
systems like capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy, they are all at work keeping us from that wise life um, yep. and from that yes. sort of more holistic way of being with ourselves and that more holistic way of being in relationship with other people. It reminds me of that thing 100%. about uh, the, the failed metaphor of the brain as a computer and like the idea mm-hmm. that we like created this thing and then we're like, oh yeah, this is like what our brains are like and we have this totally rational calculated oh. part <laughs> Right, it's all connected, right? Those right? your emotions you're one and your being. You have all physical of these feelings going on. You can never shut one part of that down. It's just always it's all doing its work. And if you just start ignoring part of it, you're just ignoring part of what you have, one resource that you have available to you for making good decisions. I also find it soothing to have it validated because I think often when you're non-monogamous, and I wonder if you encounter this, uh, an assumption that people can make is that you've somehow just transcended all of the struggle <laughs> and complexity yeah. of relationships and that you're in some like like anyone ever does that enlightened yeah. state where you don't experience jealousy you don't experience self-doubt you don't get confused yeah. you don't fall into like pits related to your own traumatic experiences i find it soothing to be reminded that to endeavor to like live and love differently is not not about arriving somewhere where you're doing everything right. And I think that's why the framing of mistakes is what I like about this podcast. But in fact, it's about like recognizing the ways that we've been kept away from that wise life, the difficulty of living with some of that really cruel programming, the ways that it separates us from ourselves and each other, and trying to do differently while understanding that it's very, very hard, and that we will fail too sometimes, and maybe often. We'll fail. Of course we'll fail. And not only are we trying to do something really hard, we're trying to do it without good role models or without having been told from our infancy, like, this is how you can solve these kinds of problems that might come up. We're, we're all, like, scrabbling around on the internet trying to find these resources, yeah. right? Um, and at least that exists now and we can, but, but none of us have been taught this since the age of three, which monogamous folks have been you know trained in the idea that various kinds of problems will come up and are solvable and it's just not true for for non-monogamy you know it's very different well and and if you're to a much higher standard sorry sorry go ahead (laughs) well that's what i was going to say is that it's not as though monogamous relationships aren't full of struggle and conflict and all all sorts of challenges but when ours go wrong, people will blame the non-monogamy. Right. No one's going to blame monogamy when a monogamous relationship yeah. goes wrong. And it's always something else. I was about to ask about that sort of defensive positioning and, and if you feel like you're sometimes like put in a role of kind of having to justify either your personal lifestyle or the, like, the challenges that you're bringing up to these yeah. norms. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and I think that's... All the time. Yeah, and that's so hard because of not being able to you know, talk about what's hard about mm-hmm. what you're doing. And that's essentially like the reason that we started this podcast partly is is to lean into that a little bit more because I think people certainly need validation if they're living in a, in a different way or like having different kinds of relationships. But they also yeah. need like support in that things about that are going to be difficult. Things about it are maybe going to be particularly difficult as compared to like the scripts that you have um, that you've grown up with. Um, exactly. And this is, this is entirely a catch-22, right? Because on the one hand, as soon as you start talking about the downsides, which incidentally, it's, it's in, people always think they know what the downsides are. And I'm always like, mm, not really, but never mind. <laughs> uh, but as soon as you start talking about the downsides, people are like, oh, well, non-monogamy is a disaster. Let's never go there. 
Um, but of course, if you never do that, then as soon as people start trying it and something goes wrong, they assume uh -huh. it's not for me. I can't do this, or you know, everything's everything's gone wrong, and you know, worst case scenario, brain kicks in. So there's there's it's a complete double bind for for yeah. anyone who's and this goes for you know literally anyone who's trying to break the script, not just for non-monogamous folks. But either you don't talk about the the difficulties, or you do, and you know you you're going to lose either way. And you lose either way. And I was thinking about, you You were talking about where are our role models, um, uh, other folks who break the script. And one thing I wrote down was, I think of chosen family in the tradition of a lot of queer communities as mm -hmm. a real living example of mm -hmm. models of folks living and loving in different ways, um, despite yeah, 100%. all of these systems that would be invalidating, judging, or even attempting to like hurt these families. Um, Exactly. And I mean, the, the interesting thing about some of this stuff is it can, it can emerge out of necessity in certain places. So you can find, you know, people who are not necessarily going around talking about it or identifying it as polyamorous, but practicing polyamory um, in situations where just economically monogamy is not correct. You cannot live unless there are multiple yeah. adults bringing money in to support the household, to support to kids, to raise their kids together. And whether that looks like, you know, what we would think of as polyamorous relationship or just a bunch of people trying to share their homes and their uh, responsibilities and just support each other, whether it looks like extended family or multiple relationships. I mean, it, it tends to be in those kinds of situations where folks are under a lot of external pressure that the alternative models become, that they, they really show their worth and their mm -hmm. value. Um, but, you know, ideally, that stuff would be made available to everyone as an, as an option that they could choose, not just out of, out of necessity and not just something you'd get forced into. Um, but, yeah, you're absolutely right that there's, um, there's, there's this, permanent, uh, this permanent policing of any kind of deviation from the norm makes it, it, it sets you up to fail. <laughs> yeah, it does. So, I mean, I have so many questions, but I also, you, if, I'm no, like, I, I mean, can just go on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to try to bait you into talking more about some of the actually hard things. Um, I mean, mostly yeah, in the interest I mean, of like listeners who are, uh, you know, who are, who are either experienced with non-monogamy or like just like, like kind of thinking about you know, mm -hmm. opening a marriage or trying to, to shift their lifestyle. Like, what are some of the things that do come up that are that are hard um, as so, opposed to the, uh, yeah, go ahead. Not the, like, so, so, I mean, everyone's going to say the obvious one is jealousy, but like, sure, but that comes up in every relationship that I've ever heard of. So, yes, you might have different kinds of jealousy-related challenges and different ways of approaching them, but that's also all over every manual about non-monogamy, so it's kind of boring now. Um, for me, one of the interesting ones is gender, so um, or gender-related stuff. So in my experience, if you say you're a, a, a man and a woman, you're a couple, you decide that you want to, you're in a monogamous relationship, you decide you want to open it. What will quite often happen is both people jump online, the woman gets a million offers, the man gets like tumbleweed and then, and then there's a problem right? where oh. clearly that's a conversation that's going to need to happen about like what are we going to do in those circumstances how are we going to approach that and the one very um, natural I suppose would be a fair way of putting it but also now somewhat cliche reaction to it is to say well we'll just date as a couple 
and we'll just find and usually because women tend to be more willing to be uh, flexible with their sexuality that ends up saying we will go on tinder and say we're a couple and we're looking for another woman to join and then you find you actually open tinder and you'll see millions of people all looking for that mystical mm-hmm. uh, unicorn woman right so so that is that that's a kind of problem that has a, a characteristic solution that may work for some people, but for a lot of people, it's actually just very frustrating and mm. um, and, and difficult. So that's, I mean, that's one that that I'm aware of. That's not, <laughs> yeah. It's not as often talked about as um, as just, oh, don't you get jealous when your partner's with someone? Mm. The way that the, the way the different ways that women and men are treated for being non-monogamous is also a huge deal. So the kinds of hate mail that I get. Lots of the words used are not words you would use for a man. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure you can imagine without me kind of stopping this from being a family show. What kind of <laughs> words those would be? Yeah. yeah well, and those don't, words don't even exist in reference to men. Maybe, right? It's not yeah, that they're not they being used. They because just, we yeah, don't. We don't have them. Yeah, yeah. They, we don't have those words because we don't think about men that way for yeah. doing the same thing. It's a double standard. And this is how I mean when you're talking about what's hard. I feel like a theme that's emerging in this conversation is that trying new ways of loving and living, maybe ones that feel like better fits for us or that just open up options for people, um, they still are happening in a very flawed world where there's a lot of inequity and where there's inequity between genders, where there's misogyny, where there's racism, where there's you know economic inequality, and that those things all show up in non-monogamy and polyamory too, um, in kind of interesting and sometimes surprising ways. And one of the things that's like fascinating to me is you can, you could end up dating somebody who, um, so, so when we, when we tend to think of ourselves as like pairing up for life and settling down, uh, that we, we have a tendency and I'm not saying this is like anyone's intention, but we have a tendency to end up, end up with someone very similar to us in those respects, right? In terms of race, class, cultural background, etc. But those of us who are open to non-monogamy may well be more open to meeting partners who could be from extremely different kinds of walks of life. Um, because we're not thinking, maybe because we're not thinking in those same terms about like, oh, I have to, I have to marry this person and I have to have my children with this person and settle down by house. So th- my family's going to meet that. this person. I'm going to like right, live with right. like the larger More social political implications. Like yeah. That they might be on the table, um, which is, it has all of the pros and cons of that. So uh, on the, the downside, you, you might find yourself really unprepared to deal with the kinds of life that someone has been living before they met you, right? um, mm-hmm. because this is someone just like so outside of your social circle. And especially now we use we use online tools a lot to find a person that, that we have this you know potentially have this kind of attraction to. It's not just necessarily someone we'll meet at work or someone we'll meet in the place where we live. So the chances are we can we can end up. But this also to me has extremely interesting radical potential. Because anytime you're able to make community and make connections that get you outside of your comfortable bubble, whatever that might be, um, you are potentially then learning more about how the world works and, you know, (laughs) not to put too fine a point on it, uh, bougie middle class folks can see more about what it looks like the other side of town if they fall in love with someone who lives there, right? So that I think is actually really a really interesting, um, and the chances of you just meeting and making friends with someone are as an adult um are pretty slim 
but the way and that, that intimate connection love it's actually more likely sorry yeah, yeah. oh just that idea of intimate connection across uh, some of these really serious div- divisions yeah. is and I want to say like mm-hmm. especially class I think that's a thing that mm-hmm. I've been kind of surprised uh, about huge. like non-monogamy and polyamory seems to be something that like spans it's not just like a a bougie white person no. thing necessarily <laughs> um, but they're the ones who talk about it yeah, yeah exactly that, uh-huh. right uh, but there are a lot of other people uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they're the ones who work at universities and you know right, have podcasts right. and, and, and they like get that. the yeah. platforms and uh-huh. yeah that's why yeah. you see them all the time but the folks who are just like struggling to make ends meet they haven't got time to, to do yeah. this stuff but they're also they're living the life i think about this all the time in terms of what you were saying about wanting to like the respectability politics of things. And I, I'm mm-hmm. always trying to gut check myself and then sometimes failing around like, am I doing that same thing as, you know, Carrie, your critique about the way we approached gay marriage rights, where it's like, mm-hmm. I'm acceptable. I'm normal. Yeah. This isn't like all the unacceptable things that you think it is, yeah. you know, like, mm-hmm. and this kind of whitewashing and respectability mm-hmm. washing that can happen here yeah. too. So. I know. I mean, that's why I kind of, I, I like the... Um, I like that radical potential that polyamory has. And I, I, it's only a potential, right? It doesn't have to go that way and people are perfectly capable of being, you know, capitalist assholes while being polyamorous and, and racist yes. and all of the rest of it. And, and uh, certainly very misogynistic and that is, you know, that's gross and it happens in a lot of, of non-monogamous circles as well as everywhere else. Um, but, all, you know, all of that aside... There is there is potential there, and there are I do see it happening in some circumstances, in some communities, to really make connections that are substantive and wouldn't exist otherwise. Um, mm-hmm. And that is that I see as is important um, mm-hmm. and um, worth grabbing hold of, you know, to the to the extent that we can. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I I want to make sure that we get a chance to just have you tell us a little bit about your new books. Um, what they're about, what we can expect from them. Um, But before I do, just because the theme of mistakes is kind of important to me, I think it's a kind of classic therapist framing of things too. Um, (laughs) What do you think is a mistake that you've made in non-monogamy or polyamory? I have have one that's quite recent that I can tell you about, um, which is uh, turning my phone off um, when when Jonathan needs to get hold of me. So my husband... Um, he's he's a he likes to know what's going on um, in terms of like scheduling. Um, he's, he, he wants his his time to be organized and to know like basically to know where I am and that I'm safe and stuff like that. I went on a date where it was noisy in the restaurant. Had my phone in my bag and it was on silent. Um, and and he was trying to figure out where I was because I, I guess po- probably this was also a communication failure. He didn't know how long I was going to be there or what was going on. And he was trying to call me and I didn't hear the phone. So, you know, that kind of thing just makes him worry unnecessarily. And it's not, that's not fun for him. Um, and I, I wish that I wouldn't have done that. I wish I would have told him more clearly in the first place. And then I wish that I would have also made sure I was, I was communic- I wasn't incommunicado during that time when he, when he was trying to, to figure out what was going on. Um, and, you know, but the thing about that, is that I could have been playing golf, you know, or <laughs> I, it, could have, right. it could have been anything. It's just that I was on a date. So, so these are, these are mistakes you can make while dating, but 
you can make these mistakes a lot of other ways as well. Yeah. <laughs> and I do. But maybe it <laughs> yeah, does speak do to like <laughs> the responsibility that you have for sort of like, like an extra responsibility for care if you have more partners and you are in more potentially vulnerable or like, uh, you know, threatening situations, right? Like in theory, we would all be just like, you know, I'm totally zen about my wife being out on a date with somebody else, but maybe it does feel a little different than golf and that's okay, and, right? And that's yeah. legit, you know? And um, the other thing, you're absolutely right, that being in more um, relationships, there's a tendency, when I talk to folks who've never experienced it, people think about like what's in it for, they think of it in terms of what's in that for me. And they're, they're like, oh, it must be great for you to get that from so many people. I'm like, well, actually, this is what I'm giving to this many people. I'm, I, you know, it's not, it's not at all, like, I don't primarily think in terms of, like, what am I getting? Like, I think about love as, as from my point of view, more about what I'm giving to my partners. And so, like, having more of them does mean, yeah, you have more responsibility to, to care and to, to behave ethically towards folks. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's... Those are additional challenges, especially because then you also need to know the person, the people well enough to know where their sensitive spots are. Okay, so if you're with, you know, if you're with someone who, you know, doesn't really care what time you're out until and they're not going to be particularly worried about it, that's different from knowing that you're with somebody who does care what time you're out until and would like to know when you'll be back and if they need to stop worrying about you. And that, you know, so once you know those things, you can accommodate them, but you have that extra responsibility to... Yeah, just not to step where the sore spot is. Yeah, yeah. and you got to make the mistakes to figure out where those are sometimes, too. Exactly. Yeah. Right. How would you know otherwise? Sometimes they yeah. don't even know. Right? That's what I was going <laughs> to say. I've learned myself. a lot about my own sore spots. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, that's how it works. I mean, this is, yeah, it's entirely the process. It's called life. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Life and love, right? Both of those things, yeah. Both of those things. <laughs> So, Alex, should we talk about Carrie's books now? Anything yeah, else yeah, you want to make sure that we hit on? Nope. That, okay. This was this has been so great. Um, I'm I'm super excited to hear about your forays into fiction as well. And like, oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, tell us about both of your new books. Yeah. So I mean, the novel is not super related to any of this, so you don't have to cover it on the podcast. It's um it's actually a like academia based novel, um and and it's quite dark. <laughs> it has, well, that it sounds has like a, my dream genre. <laughs> so okay. I'm a well, super fan already. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a mystery based novel. Um, it has, um, but, but if you're expecting it to be like, you know, satisfying Agatha Christie, then you'll be really disappointed. Um, it has, it has, um, a, it has a queer central character. Um, she's raised, she's, she's, um, very early, she's. Uh, it becomes clear that her mother's not able to raise her, so she's raised in um, impoverished circumstances by a, an aunt or an aunt and an uncle who may or may not actually be her aunt or uncle. And then you know she she turns out to be smart and she goes off, gets sort of catapulted into an academic world that is um, bears some passing resemblances to mine, but of course is entirely fictional. Of course, <laughs> of course, it always is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So yeah, and and it goes from there. So she she makes friends with uh, um, her first real friend in her entire life is this rich kid in her in her uh, time at um, as an undergraduate at Cambridge in England, and then her friend goes missing, and the rest of the novel is the fallout from that. And this is this one is Victoria sees it. That's called Victoria sees it. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. 
excited. <laughs> and what about Sad Love? That's a that's a nonfiction, another nonfiction book. Sad Love up, is right? nonfiction and, and is much more related to the theme of this uh, discussion. Um, so Sad Love is kind of a follow-up to what love is and what it could be. Um, but where that one really takes uh, the foundational question of what just what are we even talking about when it comes to romantic love and tries to disentangle how much of it is social from how much of it is biology and so on, Sad love uh, really takes aim at the idea of happy ever after and that being the goal of romantic love. Um, so it kind of picks apart everything that goes into that, that um, bundle of ideas, especially um, toxic positivity, um, mm-hmm. the idea that if you're depressed, you're unlovable or incapable mm-hmm. of love, those kinds of things crop up. Um, and I get into trying to, uh, this is where I end up trying to talk about the the way that our emotional and rational selves have been pulled apart from one another, set at odds with one another. Um, And I try to replace, ultimately I want to replace romantic love as a life goal with what I call eudaimonic love, which means good-spirited love. And it's an ancient Greek idea and word, um, and I get into that a lot more in the book, but the the daimons are are the spirits of of this loving relationship, Um, but not just the relationship itself, but all of its connections to its social culture, its environment, the other people around, all of those spirits have to be good spirits for the thing to work. So I, it's, it's really about seeing love as part of our interconnectedness and not as a little private thing that happens in a picket fence, the way that the romantic picture encourages us to think of it. Oh, how interesting. And so that idea of seeing yourself as a kind of holistic, in holistic relationship with the, the mind and the emotions, Ideally, but also yes. seeing also love beyond that and beyond and seeing love as a, a bigger system as well. Um, exactly. which when you imagine right. what life looks like, you know, we were talking about your, the nursery rhyme, the happily ever after mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. there comes a baby in a baby carriage and we never hear from those two people in the tree ever again. I guess <laughs> we are just assuming that they're happily ever after. Right. That's um, supposed to be that, the end of the story, right? It's literally the last line is, and they all lived happily ever after. It gives you no information about what to do with that part of your life, which is most of your life. <laughs> right. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so the idea of eudaimonic love is that you can be in good spirits without being happy. You know, you can be a, a good daimon for other people. Um, you can be, your love can be thriving, flourishing, has nothing to do with whether you're waking up every morning singing The Hills Are Alive with the Sound of Music, right? It, it's, there are other things that are more important to me in what I'm trying to do with love than whether I'm personally made happy by it, which is lucky because I actually do struggle with depression and anxiety. And, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of times where I'm not happy, but it doesn't mean I'm not loving and I'm not being loved. It's just that's right. not what that's about for me. Wow, that sounds very interesting. I can't wait. I can't wait until <laughs> we finally get it in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it should be, I think, in August or September or so in North America. Great. Perfect. Bootleg copies from the U.K. Yeah, <laughs> amazon.com.uk. There you go. Um, <laughs> Co.uk, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's fantastic. And we'll make sure to put the links to your, your website and um, where folks can find your books in the show notes. Um, awesome. And thank also you. just like, thank you for all the work that you do yeah. exploring these ideas. I, I have to say, you know, you were talking about how we struggle often to find role models or we just, you know, find ourselves kind of wondering, is there something wrong with us? Are we doing this wrong? What does this even mean? Uh, I really appreciate your work and it, I've found a lot of company in it since I've encountered yeah. you. So thank yeah. you very much. I know other people feel that, that way too. Really and people will. to hear. Yeah. 
Yeah. I appreciate yeah. it. That literally is the thing that makes it worthwhile. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Very. All right. So that was our podcast with Carrie Jenkins. I, um, I just could have talked to her for two more hours. It was so interesting. And I felt like so many of the things that she's currently writing about are things that we're thinking about, we're talking about, and a lot of people in our community are talking about. And I also just really appreciate people who can talk about non-monogamy, polyamory, love and relationships in a way that can be really like academic and intellectual and goes deep into the you know, implications from larger systems and histories. And then also just really personal and personable and relatable and authentic. Uh, and that was just awesome. Really, I can't wait for her new book um, yeah. and to have her back on, actually. Yeah, the public philosopher thing, I think she was really embodying that, like the idea that uh, you can study something and know a lot about it, but also like be kind of living it and that intersection between, you know, the lived experience um, and yeah, I was I was really interested to, to hearing her thoughts about just like the tension between trying to sort of like almost be an advocate for, you know, different ways of loving or living. And um, yeah, that's and, and then like how those experiences are hard sometimes. Um, there was like so much more to touch on. I was also interested in, in her answers to the questions about things that are hard and the things that are hard around gender. And I think there's some other. Um, there's some other stuff there that hopefully we can get into it on a future podcast about um, just like how non-monogamy forces you to like be like you can you in a monogamous relationship you can be really settled around gender dynamics in a in an unstable way right mm-hmm. like people in in couples just like find their maybe find their like pairing or the way that they like sort of have like come to like a single agreement around that. Um, and then, uh, but if you start having under other relationships, you start realizing that like, you know, that might not be the, the same agreement you have with everybody. Anyway, that's like a tangent from what we talked about, but that's kind of what I thought she was going to say. Yeah. I think she was really, uh, exploring this idea of how exploring relationships with other people is also a way of exploring and wanting to understand yourself more deeply. Uh, and that that experience is exciting and um, potent and powerful in all of these ways, but it's also scary and it's agitating and um, it can feel destabilizing. And that's like a similar tension that you were speaking to with the idea that like, it can sometimes feel a little bit like we're experimenting on our own lives. I mean, I feel that like, am I experimenting on my heart and my nervous system and in my life in a way that is um, like unsafe or reckless? Um, Mm, yeah. And I feel like she was really validating this idea that like, we're, we're trying to explore. And sometimes in exploring, you encounter things that are really like beautiful and enlightening. And sometimes you encounter things that are really scary and difficult. And the safe stuff isn't necessarily actually safe anyway. The, the not, the non exploring Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily keep you safe. Yeah. And I think lastly, the thing that I'll definitely be thinking about for, the next couple of weeks is what are some new ways of considering love, not just like the organization of it, you know, so we spent some time at the talk talking about like, what's the organization, the constellation of your relationships. And that gets a lot of attention Mm -hmm. in non-monogamy. 
But at the end, she was talking more about what is your relationship to the idea of love? What is your orientation towards it? What do you want it to be? How do you love in a way that feels holistic and connected and authentic? And I was really inspired by that. Yeah, and like what are other realms of your life or other relationships where it's showing up that you didn't even realize it maybe? I think that's what I was starting to... I'm really excited to read her her new book because it's. I'm like... And it's an achievement that you like got that book published because it sounds so like nuanced and amazing and interesting. And like, I feel like it's an uh, achievement that she got that book published because they were like, what is this a book that you're writing for Alex and Sarah yeah, right. specifically right. of the mistakes were made podcast. Right. And then they were probably like, well, we have to call it sad love so that uh, it just sounds, <laughs> sounds way more simple than you daimonic love. <laughs> also, she was introducing through that book and some of the other um, reflections she was having the intersections of mental health, mm-hmm. non-monogamy, and love. And that got me thinking about that in new ways as well. Like our lovability, the way mental health challenges show up in relationships, how that is or isn't the same in multiple relationships. You know, I, I really, yeah, a lot there. We should do a whole episode about that and mm-hmm. have her back on. For sure. Okay, well, good job on our first uh, guest. That was our first guest. For made podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Alex, for and thank you, Alex and Jessica, for doing this new adventure with a guest. Today was really fun, and thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with more mistakes cast. Bye. Thank you for listening to Mistakes Were Made. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the fish sticks are ready. The fish sticks are ready. Thank you for listening to Fish Sticks Were Made. We were trying to get sponsored by Costco oh. Fish Sticks. This is literally the second time that fish sticks, wow. Costco Fish Sticks yes. have shown up in this podcast. Thank you wow. for listening to Mistakes Were Made, brought to you by Fish Sticks from Costco. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. Um, and until then, find us on Instagram at MistakesCast. And uh, you can also email us uh, at MistakesCast at gmail.com. Um, send us your questions, thoughts, opinions, and uh, ideas for guests that we should have on the show. It's been great having a guest. Yeah, let's do let's, more. Let's do more, for sure. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Bye.